Ciao, I'm Marco. Hello, my name is Eric. And we are Curious by Nature. Coming from different places and having worked in the cultural field for several years, we felt that we were missing a broader context. So we decided to study at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. We read so many cool things. And also we wrote so many interesting papers ourselves. But we felt disconnected from the real world. Why? <laughs> why is that? I mean, why is there such a big gap between academia on one hand and the practice that we experienced on the other hand? We decided to talk with researchers themselves to find out. How do they experience this bubble and how can we burst it? Let's reconnect academia with everyday life. This is Research in Reach. One of my, my colleagues said that my problem is, and I think she's completely right, that I like my research too much. I'm like, if I can do this for the rest of my life, no problem. We, oui. something went wrong here. So wrong. <laughs> So one of the microphones decided not to help us out here by not working. And it happened to be Lisbeth's microphone. And of course, we found out when we got back. So bear with us. Uh, this is a heads up. We did um, our best to make it as much enjoyable as possible. Uh, but yeah, sorry for that. Yeah, it might not be as good as you're used from us, but... Content is still great. <laughs> yeah. Ciao, Eric. Ciao, Marco. We are here together for the fourth and final episode of our series. Today, we're going to talk with Lisbeth de Stroper. She's, uh, an, of course, another PhD student at the Department of Arts and Cultural Studies at the Erasmus University with us. Her research is about the evaluation of Impressionists as a, the art movement, starting from the 1863. Why did we decide to, to go and talk with her? What's really interesting about her research is how she is, has both a background in art history and she did our master's program of cultural economics and entrepreneurship. Those seem like contradictory views on art. And we are curious to see how she combines them. And also, when we're talking about art history, how do you translate that in something practical that we can actually use today and not just keep it dusty and boring? <laughs> no, not just keep it like something from the past that now just costs a lot of money. Yeah, uh, nice for saying boring. Um, we're going to drive to Leuven in Belgium. Uh, with my parents and we're gonna talk in a cloud town um, which is a botanic garden uh, we're very excited about that uh, we're gonna keep our social distancing and we're gonna wear masks uh, and we're gonna be again very clean so pack your backpack already done <laughs> let's go I did not want to do a PhD to have a PhD. I wanted to do a PhD to teach at a university. Why did um, you want to teach? Because I think it's the closest thing you can come to acting without having to be an actor. So um, I've only... Why I've, don't you want to be an actor? <laughs> I don't like the crowd. I don't like actors in general. Okay. Oh, you don't like the crowd of actors? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, like, the, I like audiences. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was a lot. <laughs> no, no, I like I, I love audiences. Uh, that's also why I love lectures. I like to make people laugh. I love it when I'm teaching artistry and I, I I show them. I always keep like ten minutes to 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 talk about the um, Ghent altar piece by Jan van Eyck, mm -hmm. and I have this insanely zoomed in detailed pictures. And like two years ago, when I showed it to the students, there were actually like. Wow, yeah. that's why you do this. That's why you teach. Uh, well, that's why I teach. Um, I love to make students enthusiastic about art history. So um, I studied the valuation of impressionism. So valuation, uh, economic value, um, but maybe more importantly, even uh, now, also on a sociological and historical level. That sounds very broad. Yeah, it is. One of the first things that you need to resolve when, you know, when doing the research I'm doing is how do I define Impressionism? What is Impressionism to me? And who are the Impressionists to me or in this research? Because then you need to really identify the protagonists in your story. Who are, I mean, we yeah. know more or less uh, who are these people, but I'm sure you know. Well, like, who you are have the a impressionists. Let me ask you, who yeah. are they? Um, well, they were from the 1860 uh, something, and they're a group of French uh, artists mm -hmm. that they refuse uh, the academic language. Mm -hmm. So, for that reason, they felt that they were not at ease with a certain language, with a certain visual language, mm -hmm. because the one that was um, in the society was the one from the academic, from the academy, yeah. I think, yeah. So they founded an, uh, a group. And so basically they did in an exhibition mm -hmm. uh, that it was not uh, within the main circle. Because okay. you had the salon with the academy, so yeah. that's uh, completely correct. Um, and so uh, there was a jury which existed out of uh, academia, so mm -hmm. the, the academy members. And so they tended to uh, give the best spots to, of course, their pupils yeah. or, or artists who were more or less doing stuff in line with what they were uh, trying to teach. Um, but so uh, every artist in France could actually submit and then the jury would decide whether they were in or out. Uh, they could uh, submit a couple of works. So sometimes it was like one work was accepted and two others were rejected or whatever. Mm -hmm. But so in 1863, they were extremely strict. So about what is good art. But so about mm. what is good what art. What is acceptable more what, than what is yeah, good. What's ex yeah, what is good and what's accepted was in that time the same thing. And so in 1863, they were extremely strict. And so there was a huge um, uproar among the artists. And actually the state said, um, we're going to organize a, a salon for the rejected Salon mm. de Refusé. And so it was uh, put next to the actual salon. Uh, but so the Salon de Refusé was unorganized. And so all artists who were rejected for the salon were automatically mm. uh, put in the Salon de, uh, de Refusé unless they said, I don't want to be in there. And of course, most of them, they didn't yeah. want. It was really clear to all that the Salon de Refusé, de Refusé or the Salon Annex, as it was called, was really... It, it was clear to all the visitors that those had not been accepted by the state. Mm. And so people would then go to the salon for the getting to know what was hip and trendy at that time in the art world. And then they would go to the salon to, to see to what laugh, is not. To laugh, actually. Oh. And so, for example, the Déjeuner sous l'herbe by Manet mm -hmm. was one of the uh, works at the Salon de Refusé, um, mm. which got a lot of attention. 
but so that's the Salon de Refusé. And so that was actually stage organized while the 1874 exhibition that the artists organized. It was something they did themselves. What is your favorite uh, Impressionist artist? Manet. Okay. Even Why? though it's not an Impressionist. <laughs> but he's called the father of Impressionism. So, um, well, Manet and Berthe Morisot, I actually. So if I really have to talk, choose an Impressionist, it would be Berthe Morisot. So she was a lady. Uh, and actually, I really love this. Uh, so she was, in 1878, the first history of Impressionism was written. And she was actually one of the five artists who was selected as the impressionist. So that's, and she's an amazing artist. Um, you probably actually know her from portraits that Manet painted of her, um, but she's an amazing artist uh, in her own right. So uh, yeah, but so Manet, he has my heart because he, he opened the history of modern art in any way. And so he's really a true revolutionary. But as an impressionist, uh, I think Bechmo is so. And also because if you read too much of the letters written by Degas, who hated women and who was an anti-Semitic, so hating. But so Renoir was also a horrible person. Monet was actually also very selfish. So that's also the problem. You get to know these people through their letters. And so you cannot look at their art. Purely aesthetic. Yeah. After this amazing history lesson by Lisbeth Marco, we wanted to know what her own research was actually about. What is the title of your um, PhD? Well, at the moment, it's devaluation of impressionism, which is super boring. So I need to come up with a, with a more creative one. But what would your main question be? Um, how did the evaluation of impressionism emerge and develop uh, from? the beginning up till now and the first chapter is on uh the valuation or so the emergence let's of break it down like, so the first chapter of her research is related to the valuation of the impressionist artwork by the friends and peers the second chapter is related to the valuation by the outside world aka the critics the third chapter is about posthumous evaluation so the evaluation when basically everyone are dead uh, so Monet is the last one that is dying in 1926. And the fourth and last chapter is about how different markets evaluate the Impressionists in the modern era. Like, for instance, you know, in Japan or in the United States. And then there's a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Could you? <laughs> I, I just want to ask, what is the conclusion? The main conclusions will be there will not be like... In conclusion, one plus one equals two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it will be more like a, um, a summary of the findings. Like mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, how it's really interesting how I built, I created this theoretical framework, main, mostly based on sociology and uh, some psychology and some economics. So about valuation, what it means, how it develops, blah blah blah. Who are the actors? And so against this this theoretical framework, I'm going to see how these artists, these super popular, super famous artists, how they have developed and how we can actually see that their real popularity started in the, in the after the Second World War when suddenly people like Jackie Kennedy got interested in, in, in Impressionists and that people in Hollywood started thinking like, oh, you need, you need an Impressionist in your house if you want to be cool. 
And so Greek shipping magnates who had earned a lot of money uh, with rebuilding Europe after the Second World War, they started buying these Impressionists. And so you can actually see how if the Impressionists would have known what had happened with their art, I think they would be amazed. Uh, so that's like the story that people often tell about uh, Vincent van Gogh, like, yeah, he's, he died so poor, but look at him now, he should have known. That actually goes for most of these Impressionists. Like, if they would have known what kind of crazy sums of money people would have pay for, for their art, um, yeah, 25 to 50 years after their death. So the main conclusions are not going to change the world. Um, they will, um, yeah, they will cast a different light on the story of Impressionism, um, which is something that I'm actually quite proud of. Okay, but doesn't shedding a new light simply mean actually creating new knowledge on a huge pile of knowledge that is already there? Um, she mentioned that there is already so much information on Impressionists. So what do we do with this extra layer of information? If you already know that your research is not going to have a practical impact in your world, uh, sorry to say that, but why are you doing that? Like, what is it for? Uh, I'm just throwing a bunch of questions here. Eric, what do you think? Well, maybe this research will not have a practical impact, but... Obviously, she's working very hard through both the teaching and the researching, and she's so excited about it. And maybe that's enough. However, uh, the Erasmus University, where we are studying, has as its main slogan, creating a positive societal impact. So you cannot really get around this idea that the focus is on the impact. And What's more, even our podcast is also founded on this premise that you can connect your research to something more practical and accessible. How does she feel about the need to create an impact? One half of me is a positive scientist and the other one is a humanist. Mm -hmm. So the humanist in me does not think that all academic research needs to have a use in daily life, mm. yeah, especially in the humanities. Yeah? Uh, and I think my research might be the closest you get to that. Yeah? So it's more on a... Knowing for the sake of yeah, knowing. knowing for the, yeah, so knowledge for, for, for knowledge's sake. Yeah. While the positive scientist in me is like, why are you wasting your time on this? This should be, it's useless and it's true. So that's why I also like the teaching because I'm contributing to society that way. Yeah? You can wonder, okay, what, what will society benefit from this? And then my marketing inner me would be like, yeah, but you can uh, introduce a new painter to society. You can make exhibitions, blah, blah, blah. Who are you kidding? Again, like this top elitist group of ivory tower people will maybe interesting interested in your research but society nobody cares about paintings in whatever century well a few do but only a few i care yeah i care too but i didn't study art history no but that doesn't matter like you have people who are interested in yeah. it but if you would look at society as a whole i'm not naive mm. 
like if you look at the people who visit museums, who like museums on Facebook or whatever, they're mostly the same people. I don't think half of the people are interested in what we call the high arts. And they should not be interested in it. Yeah, But so you're already talking to a very small group of people. So what's the societal relevance of any anything that will not cure cancer or will not uh, make us more aware of, of racism in particular scenes or whatever? You can wonder if you're studying arts and culture. Arts and culture in itself make an impact on society. Every day, every single day, it makes worth life worth living. But whether the research conducted in fields of arts and culture, whether all research conducted in this field should have a positive, <laughs> beneficial impact on society or whatever it was. So can I say that you think that not all academic research should benefit society? I think that that's actually one of the main things that, especially in humanities, makes a university a university. So I do believe that ideally research has an impact on society, but even that, what does it mean? Yeah, so I know my research, and I'm very aware of this, is kind of ivory tower kind of research, and but bigger picture-wise, my father is Alzheimer's re researcher. He's like one of the top names in his field. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend like my research is going to contribute to society in any way as compared to what he's doing. Yeah, so I see in our department people researching new fandom. And I also notice like if you, if you need to write what the societal relevance of yeah. your research is and blah, 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 in order to get money, I, I really sincerely do not believe that all academic research needs to be relevant for society. I think that's part of what we're doing. Again, ideally it is. But so also you guys were saying like you were missing a connection with the field. I understand this, but I don't agree with this. Because why did you choose cultural economics? Because people, if you say I studied cultural economics, they will probably take you more seriously. That's not the main reason, but I noticed this. Like when I said I did a master in art history and cultural economics, People question much less the fact that you studied cultural economics and the relevance of that because it has economics in there. Mm -mm. Even though after you finish the cultural economics master, you're not more capable to do anything while well, you have more knowledge. At the university, you're not trained to become to a job person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the university, you're being trained to become an intellectual, a thinker, an academic. A thinker, yeah. an academic. And so then later on, you get on the job practice and then you can actually use this world of knowledge to which university has introduced you to put it into practice in the real world. Yeah? Hmm. Do you remember the first episode when we had a very similar conversation with Valeria about this? Ah, oh, that's right. When we were talking with her and pushing for like, what is this impact that your research will have on society? She said, well, that is not a scholar's job. The scholar's job is to do the research and think and create theory. 
Otherwise, you just become a consultant. In addition, this might be a cultural thing. I know that a lot of Dutch people are very keen on this productivity and uh, impact and the use of stuff. So perhaps it's a cultural thing. I do feel like, especially in the Netherlands, because I also work at the university in Leuven, mm-hmm. this emphasis on what will it add to society and blah, blah, is actually clouding the way that we're doing research. I understand it though, yeah? People are giving you money for your hobby. Yeah, you could say that. It's the same like in the cultural sector, actors and actresses also always get this like, why are you complaining? You're being paid to to do your hobby. Yeah, but in academia, it's actually quite similar. Yes, especially if you're in our field, which is an awesome field, but you can wonder what the societal impact is. You, I constantly feel like you have to make up reasons to justify. So it's really, I'm, I'm really ambiguous about this. So I understand it, but I'm probably the person who is least able to actually argue for why my research deserved or deserves to be paid for. Will my, will my research change the world? No, but... Mm-hmm. I do believe that without art and without the study of arts and culture in general, why are we even living? Like, actually, I, I was contemplating about this, uh, this quite a lot a couple of years ago. And I talked to my father and, and he was, and I was like, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm getting paid to do this research, but you have to cure Alzheimer's. So, Maybe it would be better if like my research funding would go to another Alzheimer's research. And my father said like, okay, but what kind of world would it be if people did not lose their memory due to Alzheimer's, but there was nothing there to live for? Like you're doing research on the stuff that makes for many people this world worth living in. Sure. From an academic point of view, they are all equal because you're in at university where knowledge is our yeah. goal. Yeah. So finding new stuff and whether that's Alzheimer medication or whether that's finding how the story of the valuation of impressionism and how it developed, that doesn't matter. I do think that knowing about art history actually benefits society because if you were capable to grasp what people can make and create mm-hmm. for the sake of beauty, I think you are more open to contributing that way. So I think that in academia, it's your job to be thoughtful, to be smart, to consider things, to to see things from multiple sides. I really feel like that's part of being an academic. I do feel like not enough academics actually realize this, but to me, Part of being an academic is also about seeing things from all sides and maybe not deciding what's the right side. But so this paradox is something that I that I actually really think is important to me as a as a researcher to be aware of this, but also to make other people aware of the fact that the way that they're perceiving particular things might not actually be the whole story mm-hmm. and. And that's how life is actually. I do feel like people nowadays are losing, well, not nowadays, it has always been the case, but nowadays you notice it much more 
how people have lost the willingness to approach things from different sides. And I do think that if you're at a university and you're not trained to do this, the university is doing something wrong. So the paradox is being both humanist and positivist at the same time. When you look at the history of what a university is, it started from this humanist idea, which originated in Italy in like the 13th, 14th century even, and just was focused on making better leaders and better members of the church. It didn't have this idea like you want to you wanna be an economist or you want to be... Yeah, I didn't have this idea of a practical outcome. University were explicitly humanistic at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. and they were training you to think. As Lisbeth was saying, they weren't about putting something, putting your research into something practical. Yeah, there were no tools involved. No. Yeah, yeah. After that, we we know that at the end of the 19th centuries, the university has developed more towards um, more practical use of society, and this idea was picked by USA, by the United States, and there exploded where, you know, where we now we can see institutions that are extremely market-driven. So the Netherlands is somehow in between, perfectly in between, because there are some institutions that are extremely market-driven, um, some others that are more the original uh, form of academia. But I would say that The most interesting friction here is that we are studying at the Erasmus University and Rotterdam is the city of uh, Desiderius Erasmus. Who was, who was this guy? I, I always forget it. It's so, it's so bad. This guy was uh, one of the biggest philosophers and humanists from the 15th centuries, more or less, right? Around 1500. Okay, Google is helping us. Thank God. Um, and... He was really embodying this idea of being a humanistic person, a scholar, studying for the sake of studying. And now at our university, there is this very famous slogan, which is creating positive societal impact. It's a bit referring, of course, to make society better. So like having like a very practical use, how do you actually practically use your knowledge? But... Desiderius was the opposite somehow. I never thought of it that way. Good to know. Thanks to Elizabeth and to her research, we've been really end up asking the essence of, or questioning the essence of academia. Do we end up agreeing uh, after this episode or after this series about our, our idea of academia? What is your vision on the role that academia should have Maybe I'm too romantic, but I agree with her because academia is not a company and not everything has to be productive or lucrative. And what happens in academia should not be judged or valued by its economic relevance. In the Dutch pragmatist culture, it is understandable that the university is moving in this direction, but it does pose some fundamental questions about the role and function of the university in society. There are already other institutions, such as the Hogeschool, that are focused much more on these practical programs and skills. I'm not saying it's bad to think about what can we use in daily life from this research, but it's okay not to have an answer to that question. 
So I, I kind of disagree with you. Huh? I, I actually believe that academia should be definitely more keen on, on not only creating new research, but also using that to put it into practice, to put it into events and real policy changes. Academia should definitely develop, I feel, a more entrepreneurial spirit that should uh, be closer to what is his surrounding, such as Rotterdam and his population. Sometimes when people are too dreamy, they lose track of the reality. They don't understand that at some point things have to be done. You need to also, at the end of the day, have some numbers, have some references. Yeah, I disagree. I don't know. I don't know. We're getting too far. And I need a beer to have this kind of conversation. So I think this is where we are going to end our series. Of course, we are not going to end thinking about this and talking about it. And we are definitely have some really cool plans in the pipeline that we are looking forward to share with you at yes. some point in the future. Yeah. Um, if you are too curious to be waiting, feel free to contact us. Absolutely. Through... Through... Finding us on LinkedIn or... Um, Facebook. Facebook, Instagram. Instagram. I mean... we are you on Twitter? In... No, no. It's Not too Twitter. academic, Twitter. Okay, so yeah, feel free to contact us. Um, looking forward to having more conversations yes. in the future. So this was Research in Reach. And we've been working on it for a couple of months with a lot of joy and yeah. also a lot of frustration and a lot of new insights some broken microphones yeah <laughs> but yeah we want to thank everyone who's been contributing it's good to name i think once more uh my brother hans ferment for the music check him out on hansferment.com of course uh valeria moria shirley newland aria daga and lisbeth stroper for being super enthusiastic about our ambitions and yeah making time to meet us and very welcoming this, yeah as well. during this yeah. pandemic also we'd like to mention uh rosa and davy from culture calling who we've been teaming up from since almost the beginning i yeah. think um they are gonna continue creating a platform that's connecting uh people from our department so that's cultural studies to the professional job market and we hope that our podcast can contribute to that. So go check out culturecalling.nl. Let us know what you think by leaving a comment or review about this episode wherever you are listening to the podcast. It will help us a lot. Ciao. Ciao, ciao.